I wanted to give a couple of announcements. In your packet that you got this morning is on the very last page is a Wellspring evaluation. Um, this is just like something we always pass out at the end of the year. Just if you guys could fill it out to the best of your ability. You don't have to answer every question. If you're just like, I don't have anything to say for this, that's okay. Um, but we do look at them and they're super helpful as we're planning for next year. Um, particularly like, um, you know, like some lessons that you might want to hear in the future, stuff like that. Um, or some things that are challenging for you in Wellspring. We want to know that too. So um, you can bring it back next time and either give it to Janet or myself, or maybe we'll have like a little thing on the table. You can turn it in um, or give it to your discussion group leader and then they'll give it to us. So that would be awesome. Talking about next week, uh, not next week, two weeks from now. Two weeks from now is our last Wellspring, which is weird. Um, and Smed will be here teaching, which is always a super cool lesson. I love this lesson. It's on, uh, he calls it cardiosclerosis, which is like hardening of the heart. Um, and it's a very impactful lesson. Um, but the room's going to be a little bit different. So we're going to have the table set up in a, a giant, probably rectangle. Um, so we're all going to be facing each other. And after Smed teaches, uh, we're going to have one giant discussion group <laughs> where um, everyone, I know Janet said this in her email she sent out yesterday or Monday, but everyone can kind of just share either like a lesson that was really impactful or um, something that um, maybe some truth that you've been convicted of this year or how the disciplines have um, been helpful for you. <clears throat> and so just spend some time thinking about that uh, over the next several weeks um, so that you're ready to share. And I know sometimes sharing in a group is scary but we've all been in wellspring together this year so we're all friends so it shouldn't be scary <laughs> um i think you'll do great and i would love to hear everyone share so that was all i needed to say that was my reminder with lots of things written on it um <clears throat> okay so this morning um on the front page of your packet is this which is it looks like um, our disciplines, but they're missing some words. Um, so this isn't a quiz. It's just kind of a way, you know, we've been doing our disciplines all year. And so we should be really super familiar with them. So just take a couple minutes and see if you can fill in the blanks. You're not turning this in. I don't, I didn't bring a red pen with me today. Um, it's not going to be like pass to the person behind you and let them grade. Remember that in school? That was terrifying. Um, so just see if you know what, what some of the blanks are. All right, it looks like most of you are done or almost done. So I'll start by reading the purpose. Um, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. All right, and then as I read the disciplines, just go ahead and, you know, say, I was going to say yell out, but maybe just say um, what the what the blank was. So discipline one, the heart, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God. And in particular, the awesome discipline two is the home, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. 
awesome. Discipline three is ministry with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful, that's in all three, that's a key one, woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. All right, and then our verse, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Awesome. Cool. See, we know them now. Now we just got to do them. Um, that's the hard part. So um, last June, I ran across this article um, that was talking about a pest control company in North Carolina that was looking for five to seven homeowners to participate in an experiment. So these homeowners would be given $2,000 to test out experimental pest control methods in their homes. The trial lasted for about 30 days. Um, all the treatments were family and pet safe. And if the experimental technique proved unsuccessful, then the company was gonna use traditional or proven methods and I was like, oh, this sounds pretty good, right? $2,000 to kill all the bugs in my house? I could use an extra $2,000. But there's a catch. Because before getting your $2,000, before trying experimental or even proven pest control methods, that company first will release 100 American cockroaches inside your home. Yeah, that was my reaction too. I was like, <gasps> All of a sudden, I'm like all itchy, like looking around. Um, so if that wasn't your reaction, let me tell you a little bit about American cockroaches. We're all going to be like feet off the floor for the rest of the time. Um, American cockroaches are about one and a half inches in length, but can sometimes grow to exceed two inches. American cockroaches are reddish brown in color with a yellow band that outlines the area behind their head. Both males and females have wings and can fly short distances. They have the ability to bite, but rarely do. They primarily live outdoors, but it's not uncommon to find them inside. They're most commonly found in sewers and drains, but American cockroaches are more commonly found in larger commercial buildings. They can also easily infest homes by passing underneath doors, through windows, or garages, where they search for food and water, mostly in kitchens and bathrooms. American cockroaches are filthy. <laughs> this is the good part. They can spend, spread at least 33 kinds of bacteria, including E. coli and salmonella, as well as six kinds of parasitic worms, and at least seven other kinds of human pathogens. You didn't hate them before. They pick up germs on the spines of their legs and body as they crawl through decaying matter or sewage and then transfer those germs onto food or cooking surfaces in your home. Additionally, the saliva, urine, and fecal droppings contain allergen proteins, which can elicit allergic reactions and asthma attacks. So then my question is, who in their right mind would allow a company to release 100 cockroaches into their home? I tried to follow up to like find someone who did this. There's no information about them on the internet. I could not find it. So I wanted to see, like, did anyone really do this? So as ridiculous as it sounds to let dirty bugs into my home, do I sometimes allow influences into my home or into my mind and my thoughts or my heart 
that will do as much, if not more, damage than a hundred cockroaches. So let's open up our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this is a really familiar verse for all of us, I'm sure. But don't let your familiarity with it take away from its meaning. This verse explicitly tells us what to think about. So it's what to let into our minds, to allow to shape our thinking and our feeling, and in turn, our doing. So the phrase at the beginning, think about these things, or, or sorry, at the end, think about these things or dwell on these things, some translations might say, introduces an important truth that we in Wellspring all know well. My spiritual stability, your spiritual stability, is directly related to how we think. And that's why we're always talking about shepherding our hearts. It goes for our minds too, because shepherding our hearts and renewing our minds are the same thing. And this verse commands us to be habitually disciplined to think or consider in this list that we have here. Careful thinking is a distinctive mark of a believer. And there are eight godly virtues that are listed um, in this passage that we're commanded to think on. So we're just going to look at them really quickly this morning. The first one is think on what is true. So what is true? What is the only source of actual truth in this world? The word of God. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. So thinking on what is true then means reading, studying, listening, meditating, memorizing the word of God. The second one, think on what is honorable. So that means like noble or dignified or worthy of praise. So we have to guard our minds to not think on things that are trivial or mundane or common, but things that are heavenly and worthy of awe. The third one is think on what is just, or some translations might say think on what is right. And so this means righteous, things that are consistent with the law of God. The next one is think on what is pure. Uh, this one's pretty self-explanatory. This is holy, morally pure things. Um, the next one, think on what is lovely. This could be um, described as like sweet or gracious, generous things. So this is focusing our thoughts and our minds on things that are pleasing or attractive to God. Uh, the next one is think on what is commendable or of good repute. That's another um, translation you might have. So these things, these are things that are like highly regarded. So um, believers should have their minds on the loftiest of themes. And Paul sums up here uh, seventh and eighth one kind of together um, that believers should be thinking on what is excellent or worthy of praise and those are self-explanatory and so that's why proverbs 4:23 is our wellspring verse guard 
therefore keep watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And we just went through our disciplines at the beginning. So think back to those. Um, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart by keeping Philippians 4.8, thinking on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and so on. And that's key to shepherding our hearts, our thought life. And no one can see what's going on inside your head, uh, but God can. He knows. Um, but what's going on inside of our heads will eventually come out, right? So do those thoughts that we allow to run around inside bring honor to the Lord? Will they help us glorify him in our homes and in our ministry and in our lives? Um, our ability to be faithful, that was our key word that we kept filling in the blanks on the disciplines. Our ability to be faithful in disciplines two and three are a direct result of our faithfulness in discipline one. Uh, John MacArthur puts it this way. I think it's helpful. The key to godly living is godly thinking. That's where it starts. And that perfectly leads into our lesson for today. So we're just going to switch right over there. It's just a different document. Um, and so today, for our lesson, we are going to be learning from the book of Proverbs. Just checking the notes. Yep. Okay. So... Most of the book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon. He was the son of David, and he was king over Israel. In uh, 1 Kings 3, we read the account of the Lord appearing to Solomon in a dream, and he tells Solomon he can ask for anything he wants. So Solomon asks for wisdom. Um, there, the, the word wisdom, he asks for a discerning mind. And up until 1 Kings 3... Solomon is considered one of the wisest men to have ever lived. He wrote 29 chapters in Proverbs full of wisdom that we can learn from. So that phrase that he asked for, that phrase discerning mind, it actually literally means a listening heart or a hearing heart, which means having a heart that hears with a mind to obey. And it's similar to what a mother means when she tells her children, listen to me. It's you need to listen to what I'm saying so you can obey it, right? So that's the kind of the same thing that um, we're learning from here. So Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom and discernment, and God gave it to him in abundance. And so we can benefit from that great gift. So a proverb, this is lowercase p proverb. <laughs> a proverb is a short saying that just states a general truth. You've probably heard some familiar ones like, Give a man a fish and he eats for a day, but teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. That would be a proverb. But here today, the book of Proverbs, this is now uppercase P, Proverbs, <laughs> is a book of poetry. So it's not poetry like roses are red and violets are blue, but it's Hebrew poetry. So Hebrew poetry was written differently. Um, Hebrew poetry is a a development of ideas in an inventive way. So there's not rhyming happening in Hebrew poetry. Um, and a proverb is not a magical formula, right? Um, it, proverbs teach wisdom, and then they also require wisdom for correct interpretation and application. Uh, the book of Proverbs often compares and contrasts wisdom and folly. Um, 
I don't know if you guys remember when you were in school or a lot of you homeschool moms might still be doing this and you would make Venn diagrams with your kids. I loved Venn diagrams in school. It's those two big circles that overlap in the middle. And in the first circle, you write like all the things that are true about subject A. And in the second one, all the things that are true about subject B and then where they overlap, the things that are true about both of them. Um, this is nothing like that. Wisdom and folly have nothing in common. If they were in a Venn diagram, the center would be empty. There's nothing that's in common. So here's the first blank on your outline. Wisdom is skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. So that's skill for living in the fear of Yahweh. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, this man named Dan Phillips wrote a book called God's Wisdom in Proverbs. Uh, I used a lot of that to help write this lesson. Um, and it's really a really, really helpful book. So um, he has a quote that I'm going to read to you that I think is just helpful before we really get started to kind of get our minds around what we're talking about here. God-centered wisdom will encompass all our endeavors, including excellence in relationships, in personal pursuits, in finances, in child rearing, the whole shooting match. But the constant backdrop of these living skills will be the imperative of a life lived in reverence for God, in conscious application of his revealed wisdom and dedicated to promoting his glory. So we can't expect our lives to just be magically wonderful if we just follow God's wisdom in Proverbs. We have to marry that following of God's wisdom with a life lived, as Dan Phillips says, in reverence for God and promoting his glory. So that goes back to discipline one for us, right? Where are our hearts at? Are we shepherding them with the word of God? And is that changing our thoughts about God, which is changing our mind to obey, like we talked about at the beginning? It should be. So then, in contrast to this, this wise person, a fool is a stupid, wicked, vile, impious person. And that feels like some pretty strong language, but that's exactly what the Bible says about a fool. And we know that there are degrees of folly, right? Ranging from the still reachable naive to the hardened scoffer. And I think, I hope, we would all agree that we want to be the wise person, not the fool. We want to live well in the fear of, the, of Yahweh. So then how do we do that? How do we get this wisdom? Proverbs 1.7 again says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So how do we get that? We have to start with fearing the Lord. Um, in today's society, fear gets talked about a lot. Um, catsardophobia is the morbid and maybe not irrational fear of cockroaches. After today, we might have a little bit of that. Nomophobia is the fear of being without your phone. Yeah, I'm not saying anything about that. Um, and then this one's a little uh, interesting. I learned about this this time. Anatidophobia, it's the fear of ducks watching you. 
I didn't think ducks cared, but I don't know, maybe they do. Something I might not know about there. Um, but that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about here. This fear is not an emotion. It, this fear is directed toward Yahweh. And God has revealed himself to us. And so if we want true wisdom, we have to start with him. We have to have that living, vital relationship with the one true God. And I think it's easy to say, oh yeah, I fear God, without really truly understanding what we mean. The fear of God is produced by the word of God, which reveals him, his mind, and his ways to us. And we have to approach God's word with humility, right? And humility here isn't just thinking less of ourselves than we should. Humility is thinking as much of God as we should. I think that's key. Genuine humility starts with comparing myself to the infinite God. We need to stand before the true and living God in all of his holiness and all of his vastness and all of his glory. That is what produces humility. Um, Derek Kidner is another author that has written about the book of Proverbs, and he wrote that the fear of Yahweh is that filial relationship, which in the most positive of senses puts us securely in our place and God in his. And I would say we each hold or have on our tables or our phones or whatever it may be, the completed canon of scripture. So why do we all so often treat it like it's insufficient, like it's not enough? If wisdom starts with the fear of Yahweh, and the fear of Yahweh starts with the word of God, then where do we go every single day, every single time we need wisdom? The word of God. So let's turn to Proverbs 14 now. Let's see what the word of God has to say for us today. Proverbs 14. We're going to be in verse 1. The wise woman builds her house but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So home is the first place where we display all that the gospel has done in us because of Christ's work on the cross. But it's also the first place where we see that we need to fight for that gospel influence in our daily lives. Daily, there are new opportunities to live out gospel truths, and they kind of just come to us. All we literally have to do is wake up every morning and open our eyes, and there are opportunities, at least in my house. So like we learned before, Proverbs is poetry, so we have to discern what Solomon is saying here. He's not talking about building a house. <laughs> We're not expected to go home and pick up a hammer and nails and put an addition onto our front yard. Um, I know my HOA would frown upon that, and I'm sure others would. So instead, this verse, build here, this word build, um, is referring to caring for your household and causing it to flourish. So it's not simply rearranging furniture or following the latest Pinterest trend so that your house looks pretty. A wise woman blesses those whom God has placed in her household. So that could be her parents. It could be siblings. It could be a husband. It could be children. It could be roommates. It could be guests. It just keeps going, whoever God has placed in your house. A wise woman will be intentional to love and to do good to those she lives with, 
and she works with all diligence because she seeks to profit those in her home. So in contrast, the foolish woman tears her house down, even if unintentionally. She might be given to contentiousness or ungratefulness or bitterness, and she might use her words as a demolition tool, and it will destroy the people that are most precious to her. And through the grace of God, we have been redeemed through Christ, right? And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, God views you as a wise woman because of the shed blood of Christ. But remember our transformation of man chart, this blue trifold thing? Even though we're redeemed here, we're still in this mixed condition, right? We still sin. We're in the, the midst of progressive renewal. We, we all still sin. Um, one day, when we're in heaven with Christ, we will be yellow or not in a mixed condition. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be yellow. Um, <laughs> but there are times in here while we're waiting that sometimes we still look like the foolish woman, right? And I kind of like the analogy of a cup of coffee. When you're holding a cup of coffee and it spills what comes out, coffee, right? So what spills out of our heart when we're bumped reveals what's inside. And what's inside of our heart at any given moment is going to come out. And then that residue of sin is going to be revealed. So what can we do to fight that? We must be diligent to renew our minds with scripture. It's really easy to let the voices of the world creep in. There are voices that say, you deserve this or that, right? Or moms need me time. Um, but the more we know God and the more we know his word, then the more we can be a doer of the word. And then that is how we build up our homes so that we can profit them rather than destroy them and those that live in them. And Jesus died and rose from the dead, so that can be a reality. And then this building that we're talking about here, this building up of our homes, has a domino effect, right? The more we build up our own home, the more we build up each other's homes, the church body of GBC, and the church at large. Um, I don't know how many of you might remember this, but um, just south of the Chandler Mall, I think it's a Panera now, there was this vacant lot and there was this giant like six stories tall structure that they started to build a building and i don't know what happened the economy maybe but then it was just vacant for like eight years it was like it was like the skeleton of a building but it was all concrete and it just sat there and um one day somebody bought the land maybe it was panera i don't know um and and they brought in this huge wrecking ball and like people lined the streets to watch this, which I thought was kind of dangerous, but I don't know, they must know what they're doing. Um, and so this huge iron like wrecking ball, this was in the news, I watched it, it was kind of weird. Crane, the iron ball and the crane operator, you know, swung the, the ball and it smashed into the building. And like these huge concrete pieces just came like tumbling down and they kept doing it until it was just a pile of rubble on the floor. And so this could be how you're envisioning how the foolish woman is, right? She's like a giant wrecking ball just destroying her home. But she can also be like a termite, right? This tiny little microscopic insect that is just little by little damaging the structure. And before anyone realizes it, there's damage. And if the homeowner doesn't take care of it, their home is going to be destroyed. And 
that kind of destruction can happen if we're not diligent to bring our hearts to the word of God. The more our eyes are turned to Jesus, the more diligently we pursue knowing him, the more we gaze upon his character and we grow in holiness, which causes obedience. Remember that mind to obey that we went back to at the beginning. And it blesses those in our home. And I would hope that no woman today here would say that she willingly wants to tear down her home. If you would like an example of someone who did want to tear down her home, go to 2 Chronicles 22 and read about Athaliah. Not a great example. Um, But when our aim is not to glorify God, but to glorify self, it's exactly what we're doing. The foolish woman is driven by personal desire rather than the glory of God. And God's glory is a battle that we must fight for. Have you ever ridden a bike uphill? It's really hard. Um, And if you stop pedaling at any time, you roll backwards. I participated in a bike event that went from Death Valley to Mount Whitney. If you don't know your California geography, it's all uphill. Don't know who came up with that one. I feel like we should have gone from Mount Whitney to Death Valley, but that's just my... It was hard, okay? And if I stopped pedaling, if you stopped at any time, you had to put your feet down because you just roll backwards and undo everything you just did. So the same goes for our battle against selfishness or impatience or maybe when someone in your house says something contrary to your desire or your plan or your opinion. We must respond in a way that brings glory to God. We glorify him when our response displays his patience and his kindness. So we must prepare for battle and always be aware of our hearts so that what spills out when bumped will be the good that is stored up in our hearts because we have purposed to know Christ and his character. We were just talking about this um, when we were praying before. We have the power to bless and build up the lives of those around us. We do but we also have the power to tear down and destroy. And because of that new heart given to believers by God, we're called wise. And while we know that the power of sin has been broken, praise the Lord, and the penalty of sin has been paid by Christ at the cross, praise the Lord, that presence of sin still remains. And we have sin's residue in our hearts. So when we see the word fool in Proverbs, we ought to think of two things. Either the one whose only hope is for God to give him a new heart. That's a fool. Or the one who knows God but is acting foolishly in this moment because she's allowing her flesh to rule. So believers in Jesus will display some deeds of the flesh, right? Because of that mixed condition that we talked about. But believers will not be characterized by them their lives will be most characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. We see in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So Proverbs, thankfully, is not talking about our salvation status, right? We are no longer fools when we have been adopted by God the Father. But Proverbs does help us to evaluate that residue of foolishness still remaining in our hearts. 
and God reveals sin in our hearts so that we might pursue him and his glory. So you all have a home, right? Some of you live with your parents. Actually, I don't know if any of you live with your parents, but sometimes people might live with their parents. Um, siblings, some of you. Children, husbands, roommates. Some of you live alone. But everyone's living situation, your current living situation, is a season, and seasons change for all of us. And so don't feel like this might not apply to you in this moment, because it does. And if it doesn't today, it will. So let's look at Proverbs 14:1 again. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So the wise woman, while fully dependent on God and his word, discipline one, figuratively speaking, builds up the prosperity of her household. So number one on your outline there is wise women in Proverbs. Let's look at some descriptions from Proverbs of a wise woman. Proverbs 11.16 says, A gracious woman attains honor. 19.14, A prudent wife is from the Lord. And then in 31, verses 10 and 30, An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So what makes this woman excellent? The fear of the Lord, right? She disciplines herself to be in God's word, to know the God of the word, and reminds herself of the gospel, which produces fear of Lord, the Lord in her heart, which in turn produces obedience. So wise can um, often be seen two ways in Proverbs. Uh, the letter A there, the wise woman listens well. So there's an eagerness to receive instruction as well as rebuke. So does this describe us? A wise woman is in a full throttle pursuit to grow in understanding and in her grasp of the gospel. And she continues to saturate herself in gospel truths and strives to know them more. And she seeks to remember that Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then a wise woman takes what she knows and what she believes about God and applies that to her life. There's a doing there. A wise woman has nothing to fear because she trusts in Jesus. And she no longer comes to him in her own righteousness because she knows she doesn't have any. She has his righteousness. And the deeper our understanding of our own sin and the holiness of God, really the sweeter the mercy of the cross becomes. So we're going to look at those verses that I have listed there about what Proverbs has to say about the wise woman listening well. Proverbs 8.33 A wise woman heeds instruction and does not neglect it. So this is obedience language here, because heeding is doing. It's obeying. It's not just knowing. And then Proverbs 9, 8 says, she loves the one who reproves her. Have you ever had someone rebuke you, and your first response is just love for them? 
That's a challenging one. Maybe your second or third response might be, but that first one, we want to love the one who reproves us. When I was learning to drive, I drove a VW Bug. I know Bonnie and I were just talking about it. You did too. So you're going to know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know if yours had this, but they have giant blind spots. They're not very safe to drive. Um, it's what I learned on with like a driving instructor. Um, also probably not the best idea, but when you're making a right or a left or changing lanes, I never actually knew what was in my blind spot. And I didn't go unless my driver instructor was like, yeah, it's safe to go. So that's the very definition of a blind spot, right? We have no idea what's in it. And that's why God uses others in our lives to help us. It's good for us. We're an instrument in each other's lives. Um, and, and that can be used to fulfill God's purpose. And we should welcome that help in our pursuit of Christ, even though it's slightly painful. Um, let's keep going down with the verses, Proverbs 10, 8, and 15, 31. So this is in there twice, which makes me think it's really important. Um, a wise woman receives commands, and she listens to life-giving reproof with a heart to obey. It's the same, same words there, that mind to obey, heart to obey. Unlike the babbling fool, which only leads to ruin. And then 1920 says, a wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. 9-9, nine, nine, a wise woman when taught will become wiser still. And 8-34, a wise woman listens to wisdom. So a teachable spirit begins with a humble spirit. We've talked about that already. It's a spirit that recognizes that I am the greatest of sinners. And a teachable spirit is descriptive of a woman who knows she needs to change and she needs to grow and she is eager to do so, so she listens well. And sometimes this includes inviting others to speak into our lives, asking them what they see that needs attention that maybe we don't see. And I realize that's hard, but it's, it's good. So the second way that wisdom is, uh, or the wise woman is seen in Proverbs, this is B uh, on your outline on that second page, the wise woman speaks wisely. Um, there's a whole bunch of verses listed down there. We're going to try to go through them. This is kind of like a survey of Proverbs, but there are so many other verses that are not listed here. Um, Proverbs is, is quite full. Um, so the wise woman speaks wisely. 1623, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. And then our wellspring verse, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. When your cup of coffee gets bumped, what comes out, right? Challenges will come. You will sin. I will sin. We will be sinned against. We might sin against each other. Um, trials are going to come. And whatever is in my heart will be revealed. So let us purpose to be filled with the gospel of Jesus so that what spills out is gospel truth. So let's see what Proverbs has to say about our words. Back down there, Proverbs 10, 19, a wise woman restrains her lips. 12, 18, a wise woman isn't rash. She brings healing. 13, 14, a wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. 14, 3, a wise woman's lips protect. 15.2, a wise woman makes knowledge acceptable. 
And then 15.7 says, her lips spread knowledge. So these verses show us that a wise woman must first guard her heart well, so that what comes out of her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome. And my sweet husband reminded me of those words just two days ago. So I had a blind spot. Thankful for that. <laughs> uh, so we are sinners, living with sinners. So the question is, how am I going to respond? Will I build up or will I tear down? And thankfully, God has graciously given us everything we need to listen well and to respond rightly and to speak wisely. So now we've seen what Proverbs has to say about what the wise woman looks like, sounds like, and how she can build up her home. But Proverbs also speaks to many ways that we can tear down our homes. So now we're going to look at foolish women in Proverbs. That's number two. Um, the first blank there is the foolish woman is sexually immoral. Um, this also has a lot of verses. I'm just going to read that first one. Proverbs 5, 3 through 6. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. So God calls for us to be pure. And this means that we view others as brothers and sisters, seeking to speak, act, dress, and even think in a way that does them good, that helps them to see Christ in us, and spurs them on to love God and be pure. And the only relationship to go beyond that is if we're married, that relationship with one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It's pure. It's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually provocative or immodest in our dress or even thinking sinfully or sexually about any other person is immoral. And like every other sin, Sexual immorality is birthed in our heart. So even if we think we aren't behaving in a way that is immoral, we still need to check our hearts. So there's some questions that we can ask ourselves. Where are my affections? Do I desire what I shouldn't? Am I content or am I thankful for what God has given me or not given me? Am I conducting myself in a way that is loving in my dress? in my conduct, in my speech, in my behavior. These kinds of questions can help us identify if there are any roots of sexual immorality in our hearts. And then we must also guard our hearts and our minds by being very careful by what we watch or what we read. And there are a lot of worldly views that penetrate our entertainment. Uh, TV, movies, books, and the good old internet. But we cannot let that kind of entertainment entertain us. We must not be entertained by what Christ died for. There are more verses there in your outline. We're not going to take the time to go through them today, but you can do so on your own if you would like. We're going to go on to letter B. The foolish woman is idle. 
Um, the first, one of the verses, wait, it's not the first verse, one of the verses under there. <laughs> um, Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. So laziness and idleness tear down our homes. They are characteristics of a foolish woman. So laziness really is just opting for what is comfortable for me rather than what is best for others. And maybe that can be seen in the discipline of our children, right? My eye must be on what is best for my child, not my own pleasure or comfort in the moment. And laziness or idleness is believing that good things should come my way without having to work to get them. And then it's a willingness to permit myself to not do things that I know I should do. All right, and then we're going to move on to the next one. The foolish woman is contentious. That's C, letter C. The foolish woman is contentious. So what does contentiousness mean? It means to be given in angry debate, to be quarrelsome, filled with strife or discord. Um, Proverbs 19.13 says, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. So Proverbs is likening a quarrelsome wife to that extremely annoying drip, 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 drip of a leaky faucet. We don't want to be that annoying drip of a leaky faucet. Proverbs 21, 9 and 19. Again, it's in there twice. It must be important. It's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So vexing, it's not really a word we use very often, but vexing means to provoke, to stir up, to debate in anger. And a vexing woman might look like someone who has to have the last word. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16 says, A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind, and he grasps oil with his right hand. So think about that. The last several days, or like two days ago, it was like super windy, right? Did anybody try to stop it? <laughs> Control it? Nobody can do that. Or have you ever like spilled oil while you're cooking and you try to like pick it up? You can't, it's, it's pointless. They cannot be controlled. The wind can't be controlled. Oil can't be controlled. So we've talked about the Israelites before. Um, I love talking about the Israelites. Um, and if you've been coming on Sunday nights, you've heard a lot about the Israelites. Um, they saw God do wondrous miracles repeatedly, and yet they still grumbled and they still complained. And they are a sobering example of contentiousness. So we are going to look at those Israelites again. Turn to Exodus 17. They are a really good example. Unfortunately, a bad example. Um, Exodus 17, we're going to start in verse 1. All right, Exodus 17, 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was not water for the people to drink. 
Okay, so the Israelites had a real need here, right? They needed water, legitimate need. But their problem was their response to their need. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you ever find yourself responding like this to a genuine need? Grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining are signs of contention, which will tear down our homes and our relationships when our hearts are filled with discontent. But thankfulness cultivated in our heart kills contentiousness. And there is always something to be thankful for when you know Christ. You can think on all that God has done for us as believers. You can think about what we truly deserve. You can think about all that he has given us. And you can think about all that he gives us now in the way of earthly blessings. He's always at work in our lives and in our circumstances, and God is always good, and we can trust him. So what can we learn from these Israelites? These are your blanks down there. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. And then number two, contentiousness breeds more sin. Grumbling, fear, accusations, one sin always leads to another. Sin always has companions. And then number three, complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. So um, the Greener Grass Conspiracy, it's a, it's a book about contentment, um, calls complaining telling a lie about God. We're not trusting or believing God's goodness when we complain. We're not trusting that what God has for us in this very moment is his best for us. And we're not believing that he actually cares for us or that he is at work for our good. And in that moment, it will do us good to look again at the cross, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remember that God has provided for our greatest need in salvation, and he will provide every other way. And life isn't easy, right? I think we all could agree with that. It's hard. It's really hard sometimes. But no matter what we face, we can be confident and we can be comforted in knowing that each circumstance has passed through our Lord's hands and he loves us and he's working all things for our good and for his glory. And he knows, right? God knows and he cares. So thinking back to the Israelites, they wandered in the desert for 40 years and God was faithful. He was so faithful. And yet they still continued to be contentious. And then when we study those Israelites, we see a lot of other companion sins that come along with them. So these are listed there. Yeah, contention is stirred up by anger. Here's what Proverbs has to say about anger. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And then 1518, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Another companion sin is arrogance. 
Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts the Lord will be enriched. And also gossip. Proverbs 26, 20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. And then there's also contention creates defensiveness. Proverbs 18, 19, contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So back in the old days, when a city was under attack, people would bar themselves in for protection. And if we have this kind of defensive action in our homes, it's going to bring division. When there's contention and one party hides away from another, either emotionally or physically or spiritually, then there's withdrawal from one another. And it's important that when we encounter anger or withdrawal in a relationship, we need to look behind those behaviors to discern what the real issue is, right? More often than not, it's some sort of hidden anxiety or fear. And so maybe for us, instead of defending ourselves, I know that's hard, we can try responding calmly by addressing the other person's fears with gentleness and kindness and the love of Christ. And then it is much more likely that we will have a result that glorifies the Lord. So who among us has not been hurt by the words of another person? Or who hasn't regretted something that we ourselves have said? And who among us can say, my words are always appropriate to the situation and they are always kindly spoken? Not me, I know for sure. I would imagine none of us can say that. So what can we do? What can we do now? The next one is forsake contention. That's the letter A under three. Forsake contention. So communication is all about the words that we say, right? But it's also about the words that we choose not to say. And then the tone and the timing of the words that we do say. And if we refuse to let our talk be driven by our passions or our personal desires, instead to be driven by God's purposes, then our talk will be actively forsaking contention. Um, sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ, right? But have you considered what sanctification is going to cost you? It's an intense narrowing of our interests on earth and an intense broadening of our interests in God. So sanctification means this intense concentration on God's point of view. That means every facet of you, your body, your soul, your spirit, your energy, your time, your focus, your desire, your thoughts, your actions, everything is kept for God's purposes only. So are we prepared for God to do in us all that he has purposed and separated us for? Are we prepared to not be contentious, to not grumble or complain when we don't understand or we don't agree with what God is doing? God has promised to finish the work that he began in us, and that work that he began, what it's referring to there, is the work he began in salvation, and the ongoing work is the process of sanctification, of us being renewed day by day. God is in the process of refining us, and our hearts are going to be exposed and changed as we submit under him, and we can trust him in that process. 
And we can't demand change in one another, right? Just like we can't demand for gold to be pure without heat and time and patience. And we still live in a fallen world and there will be disappointment and there will be hurt and there will be failure and there will be sin. But we can learn to speak redemptively in the face of that. And let me describe what speaking redemptively means. It's speaking in a way that seeks to help rescue that person from their entanglement in sin. Not self-defense. It's not self-interest. And uh, Galatians 5 helps to show us how to choose our words carefully to speak redemptively so as to forsake contention. So let's turn to Galatians 5. Unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack all of Galatians, um, but we're just going to kind of skim over the top. Um, Today, I wish we could have a whole lesson on Galatians 5. It would be super, super helpful. So Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So let's take a second to evaluate. Are our relationships shaped by love? Are they showing us in the servant posture? Are we asking God to reveal how we can be used to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds? Are we making it our aim to look for ways to comfort, encourage, or warn, or teach each other? And maybe this is a lot easier with the person you're sitting next to than the person you live with. When we're faced with a difficult relationship, it's important to view that difficulty as an opportunity to minister in the grace of God through love. We have a choice to make in that moment, right? We're in this moment of disagreement and we have a choice. And we should seek to serve and not be served. And that is what builds up our home. And that is what builds up our church body. James 4, the first two verses say, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So either we are living as a servant of the Lord, accepting his call to serve those around us, or we are living to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and expecting others to satisfy those cravings as well. Okay, we're still in Galatians 5. Look down at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So most of the problems, all of the problems we encounter in relationships are not primarily horizontal, right? They're not primarily person to person. They're fundamentally fundamentally vertical. Person, me, to God. That's where our problems start. So if I am living for God's glory, if my love for him stands above my love for anyone and anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything I do and say and wherever he puts me. And one sure fruit of that heart will be loving my neighbor as myself. So in contrast, 
when a desire for a certain thing replaces love for God, that will result in conflict in my relationships. Conflict has vertical roots that produce horizontal fruit of fighting and quarreling. And my love for God should make me want to keep his law, and that will always result in practical love toward my husband, my child, my roommate, my parent, my sibling, whoever I live with. But what happens when I just don't want to? Because I think we've all been there. I just don't want to. Okay, verse 15. We're still in Galatians 5. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So when we live for ourselves and not for God, we bite and devour one another. When our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but by the desire of sinful nature, when we look to have our own sinful dreams and desires and opinions and demands fulfilled, then we will become angry and disappointed with one another, and then we will beat each other up with our words. Communication is intended to build up, to strengthen, to encourage one another, and change at the heart level fundamentally alters the way we speak to one another. Still in Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, as long as indwelling sin remains, we already talked about this, which we know it does because we're in that mixed condition, there's going to be a war in our hearts. And we must always be aware of that conflict because to forget about the presence of indwelling sin will immediately lead to problems in our talk. And I think all of us wrestle with conflicting desires. When something goes wrong, we might desire to have an appropriate godly solution. But there's other desires operating as well. We might desire to shift blame. We might desire to separate ourselves from responsibility in this situation. Or we might desire to rehearse all the other times this person has failed us. Or we might desire to hurt that person just like we're hurting. Or we might desire to share their, fail their failure with someone else. But we build up our homes by saying no <laughs> to any communication that flows out of those desires, right? Building up our homes means refusing to speak in any way that is contrary to what the Spirit is seeking to produce in me. And if I'm seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me, to not give room for the enemy, I must be willing to examine my talk with the mirror of the word of God. Psalm 19:14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So daily, we bring ourselves before the word of God. And after being in Wellspring since September, we all now know that discipline of shepherding our hearts is done throughout the day, not just our, you know, quiet time in the morning. And if your child is sick, you pay attention to their symptoms, right? So you can communicate it to the doctor. If your car is making a weird sound, you turn the music down so you can listen carefully and determine what's wrong with it. So we want to pay attention to our hearts in the same way. We want to ask ourselves questions like, how do I typically respond 
Why? What's going on in this heart of mine? Are the words that are coming out of my mouth and originating in my heart words of anger or bitterness or judgment? And I want to add here the cold shoulder or just not speaking to someone, but thinking wrong sinful thoughts is just as damaging. It's all rooted in the heart. So at this point, I know sometimes we can start to feel a little discouraged here. Like we've just been beat up. I know I do sometimes. Um, maybe this is something that you know you struggle with and you're feeling a little overwhelmed at the thought of needing to examine your heart so deeply and so regularly. I know, me too. So let's consider Romans 8. Romans 8, 5 and 11, 5 through 11, but particularly verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we don't have to live under the control of our old sinful nature. We can examine ourselves with joy because we realize we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So we can look at those difficulties in life as sovereignly given opportunities to see fruit mature by God's grace. So difficulties are not obstacles to the development of spiritual fruit. They're opportunities to see it grow. And gentleness, with our words, gentleness flows from knowing God and his power. Gentle talk does not come from a person who's angry or looking to settle the score. It comes from the person who's not speaking because of what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. And gentle talk comes when we're not speaking out of personal hurt or anger or bitterness, but we're speaking out of self-sacrificing, redemptive love. Not because of how your sin affected me, but because it has ensnared you, and I long to see you freed from its snare. We're not on a mission of selfish confrontation, but a mission of loving rescue. That's what we want. So besides forsaking contention, we also need to fight contention. And that is, I think, B there, fight contention. There's a couple of ways that we can fight contention. These are not all the ways to fight it. These are just some ways that, that I came up with. We can fight contention by remembering God's character, right? He can only ever be kind and good. We can think about what's best. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love hopes all things. We can fight contention by not underestimating our own sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1, 15. We can ask the Lord to show us what pleases him in our speech and what does not, because then we can align our hearts with him and seek him for his grace to renew our minds with his truth. We can cultivate a heart of thankfulness. All we have to do is look around us. There is so much to be thankful for. And then continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. Um, this is a small recommendation. This is something I've done in the past, and I think I've talked about it before. But like as you're doing your Bible reading, maybe pick a, a color, like 
I don't know, whatever your favorite color is, um, and, and use that color pen to highlight all the places in the Bible that you see it talking about our speech. And then you're going to have this resource for you that every time you see that color, you're going to be like, it's about speech. That's a, that's a helpful way to look for instruction in scripture. So number four here, we're going to do some self-evaluation. So I'm going to read a few phrases. They're written there on your notes. You don't have to mark anything down. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> um, just think about which of these phrases might apply to you. I frequently express gratitude for the benefits that I have received from God and others. Or, I frequently grumble about having what I don't want or wanting what I don't have. I build others up with words of praise, appreciation, and admiration. Or, I often hurt others with critical, belittling words, and I'm quick to point out the failure of others. And as a side note, I think sarcasm can fit in here because words build up and words destroy. I'm quick to humble myself and seek forgiveness when I've wronged someone, or I tend to defend or justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong. I'm faithful in praying for God to work in others' lives, my husband, my children, my friends, my parents. Or, I spend more time talking to friends or counselors about the needs in the lives of those around me than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf. When provoked, I generally respond with a gentle answer. Or, I'm easily provoked and I tend to respond with harsh words. So, like the rudder of a ship is very small in comparison with the size of the vessel, our tongues are a very little part of our bodies, James 3.5 tells us, but it must be yielded to God as a tool of righteousness. When we are wise with our words, when we're placing our trust in God, we are confident in his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good, then we obey him. And you and I build up our homes when we want what is best for others. And this just really shows us how desperately we need God and his word. And we must make our hearts ready to respond this way, to always be pleasing to the Lord. We must seek to be peacemakers and reconcilers. And building up our homes means choosing our words carefully. Um, don't give up if you're feeling overwhelmed, because we still have one more point. <laughs> Number five is gospel hope. There's hope for us. So, First uh, Peter is written there. First um, Peter two twenty four is written there on your paper. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So another part of shepherding our hearts throughout the day is thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel. So I'm just going to read a few phrases here about what the gospel is. And I hope this serves as an encouragement to you. The gospel is the good news that God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of all who would believe. The gospel gives us a relationship with God based on the sinless life and sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees us to honestly face and acknowledge our sin if we do not see our sin or acknowledge our sin, we will not see our need for him 
and we will continue to trust in self-righteousness. And then the gospel reminds us that God no longer counts that sin against us. Praise the Lord, right? Our Father is a loving and kind master. But our sin, left unchecked or like swept under a rug or hidden in a closet somewhere, you know, it looks okay. We look okay on the surface, but it's like smoldering embers and it will soon erupt into a huge fire and your home will be destroyed in an instant. So tearing down our homes takes time, right? Little by little, like termites or in great big chunks like a wrecking ball. And great damage takes a lot of time to rebuild. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So filling our mind with the world's thoughts like, being disappointed or annoyed or prideful will only make disappointed or annoyed or prideful <laughs> words come out of our mouths. And God's word calls us to renew our minds, to think like Christ, and that is what shepherding our heart throughout the day looks like. So this lesson is always a huge source of conviction in my own life, which is why I'm so thankful that I was able to study for it. Um, but it's also a source of encouragement for me, remembering what God has done for me and our freedom that we have in him to renew our minds and to shepherd our hearts. And so I hope that it has done the same for you. Um, we can be women who speak kind and helpful words. Christ has equipped us to build each other up and we were bought with a great price. So the gospel is a call to forsake living according to the cravings of our sinful nature. So that we can live for Christ. And um, I, I would love to encourage each other as we continue to pursue Christ diligently so that we can be wise women who look like wise women and who talk like wise women, who our affections are for him and our service is for him and our trust is in him so that we can build up our homes for his glory and the church body. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so full of compassion and faithfulness and long-suffering and an inability. I have an inability to understand your love for us. And yet you do. You continue to love us and you continue to forgive and you have covered our sin and you have forgiven us and you have given us new hearts. We are wise women and I pray that we do walk in a way that brings you glory that our words are filled with truth, that they're filled with kindness and love, that we are reflecting your righteousness and your graciousness and your love to people around us, not just the people at church, but the people in our homes that we are with every single day, that God, you would do a work in our hearts where we are reflecting your glory, that we are building up our homes and that we are causing them to grow in a way that brings you glory. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for each of these ladies being here in your name.